Laura London, and this is the first ever live video stream of Speaking of Jung. Returning to the podcast today for our 100th episode is Jungian analyst, author, and teacher, Dr. James Hollis in Washington, D.C. He holds a doctorate in literature from Drew University and taught humanities and the philosophic traditions of cultures for 26 years before training as a Jungian analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich. Dr. Hollis is the co-founder and first director of training of the Philadelphia Jung Institute. He served for many years as executive director of the C.G. Jung Educational Center in Houston and worked as a senior training analyst for the Interregional Society of Jungian Analysts. In 2014, he relocated to DC to become executive director of the Jung Society of Washington and is now a member of their board of directors. He is also vice president emeritus of the Philemon Foundation, a group of scholars, board members, and donors who share the mandate to prepare the unpublished works of C.G. Jung. Dr. Hollis is the author of 18 books and has joined us on five previous episodes. Episode 25 on why good people do bad things. Episode 27 on the Eden Project. Episode 32 on living and examined life. Episode 65 on living between worlds. And episode 79 on prisms. He returns to us today to discuss his new book, The Broken Mirror, Refracted Visions of Ourselves, published on January 1st by Chiron. Please visit our website, speakingofyoung.com, for links to everything discussed in this episode. While you're there, please see our special section on Dr. Hollis for a comprehensive look at his work, including links to all of our previous episodes, as well as his books, audiobooks, films, print interviews, lecture schedule, and a series of online video courses that you can start anytime, go at your own pace, and have lifetime access to the material. This interview is being recorded on Monday, January 3rd, 2022, through the magic of StreamYard. Hi, Dr. Hollis. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Laura. It's a privilege to be with you. And I'm not in the flattery business, but uh, I want to say two things. First of all, congratulations on this marvelous contribution to the availability of various folks and various perspectives on analytic psychology that uh, your program has provided for these many years. It's quite an accomplishment. And 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 secondly, um, I'm again, I'm not in the flattery business, but um, no one does a better job of interviewing than you do for the simple reason that you really do your homework. You read the works, you study them, you think about them, and you ask very good questions. So it's an honor to be here for your 100th uh, broadcast. Thank you. That means a lot to me. I appreciate your words. Thank you so much. Um, I wasn't expecting that. I don't take compliments too well, so thank you. I, I do appreciate it. Um, where shall we begin? I, when I invited you to be my 100th guest, and um, you know, if you count the quarantine editions, um, I've done actually over 100 episodes, but the Speaking of Jung podcast, this is episode 100. And 
when I had invited you to be my 100th guest, uh, it was months ago, maybe even over a year ago. And my intention was to give you a lifetime achievement award and talk about your entire body of work and all of the books that, that you've written. And what happened was it coincided with a new book. And I wasn't expecting a new book after you published Prisms last year. And we did an episode about that. The Broken Mirror, uh, and I had heard, I attended a webinar that you gave a few months ago, um, maybe it was over the summer, and you mentioned the new book. And I was so excited about it. And it the, the release of the new book coincided with when I was approaching the 100th episode. So we're going to talk about that today. And the Lifetime Achievement Award from Speaking of Young is going to have to come later, uh, later on down the road. So I would just also like to mention that this episode is dedicated to Daryl Sharp, uh, Jungian analyst and publisher at Inner City Books, who was my first guest. He left us in 2019, and he was your first publisher. Mm -hmm. So he, he published your first book, um, The Middle Passage. Yes. <clears throat> yes. I met Daryl in Zurich. I was, my first year was his last year there. He was mm -hmm. uh, cycling back to Toronto after his training. And uh, I met him two times there and then later uh, spoke many times in Toronto and I had the privilege of having mm -hmm. dinner with him and so forth. And mm -hmm. so we formed a, not only a correspondence, but a friendship through the years. And he, mm -hmm. he too made a massive contribution. I, I believe the inner city book series includes as many as 200 volumes of uh, works all by Jungian analysts on an incredible range of uh, topics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, yes, we're dedicating this episode to, to the memory of Daryl Sharp and uh, the new book is titled the broken mirror. And I would love for you to tell us First of all, why that title? What does that title mean? Well, first of all, I thought Prisms was my last book too, but every once in a while I get surprised because I start getting nudged by the daimon, as I call it, which is a kind of Greek concept of a tutelary spirit um, between humans and the gods or the mysteries. And so the daimon forces me to write. It's not necessarily my conscious intention. Um, and that book particularly was spurred by uh, reflecting on the question of how, we, how well do we know ourselves and how well are we in contact with who we are in, in reality. And at some level, and I mentioned this in the preface, we're all the children of David Hume and Edinburgh and mm -hmm. Kant and Königsberg who pointed out pretty decisively around 1800, that we don't see the world as it is. We experience the world through the framework of our capacities, our physiological capacities and our emotional uh, straining process, our complexes and so forth. So all experience is an internal event. It's a subjective mm -hmm. experience. And once we begin to realize that, the implications are extraordinary because it makes necessary depth psychology because it forces us to look at what's going on intrapsychically within me that is shaping and molding my life, and therefore, of course, affecting my choices. 
Now, as we know, we all have a provisional sense of self. There's always that um, sentence in the King James Version of the Bible, looking through the glass darkly. And the glass was their metaphor for seeing oneself dimly in the mirror, but asking mm -hmm. the question in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, but are we ever really seen in our wholeness, which is a good question. And I, I raise that question in the book and say, to what degree is self-awareness possible? And what are the obstacles to our self-awareness? And that's where the book begins. And the first chapter talks about the internal issues that we bring to the table. Our fear of our own debts, our inherent lassitude or laziness, it's, it takes so much work. Um, thirdly, what I call the moi complex, like me, mm. you, you really want me to take on this project of my own life journey? Yeah. That's asking an awful lot, you know. So that's the first chapter is about our internal resistance. The second chapter addresses the question of how we are creatures necessarily of adaptation, but the more we are adapting to things out there, and it's necessary to do so as a child, the more we often get those adaptations built in as our reflexive responses to life. And therefore we become unwittingly prisoners of our adaptations. What was once necessary later becomes constrictive. And then thirdly, we are the animal that wants to know, to understand. So we're constantly storying our life. We're storing what happened. What was that? What does that mean? What does that say about you? What does it say about me and our traffic in between? And yes, those stories, of course, are provisional. They're, they're fictions, useful and necessary fictions up to a point. But once again, we can get caught in our fictions. And when we do, that's what leads to those repetitions in our lives where we realize, you know, here I am in the same place. I changed my relationship, but the dynamics are the same. Or I changed my career, but I'm finding the same obstacles showing up. Mm -hmm. And so these are the kinds of questions we are obliged to ask because we've been forced, and this was Jung's term, we are forced to become psychological in our time. Hmm. That that was uh, chapter three. Um, did you mention the Zen paradox? Um, chapter yeah, two, yeah. what you have become is now your chief problem. Yes, that's what I was referencing so quickly, and I'm sorry to dump so okay. much on you, but um, we are adapt ad adaptive animals, and necessarily so. But our adaptations become, in time, reflexive responses, stimulus mm. response, stimulus response. Mm. And so a child learns early in a place of a stressful environment, let's say. Is it better to enter and try to pacify things? Should I keep my distance? Should I keep my mouth shut? And we might find decades later those old mechanisms operating pretty autonomously in our lives where we shut ourselves down rather than get engaged, or, or we're constantly out there trying to fix something in our environment, that those are often the legacy of those early adaptations to the vicissitudes of our you know, time of birth, our family of origin, the moment in history, all of those factors that play a role yeah. in the formation of our, our, our sort of provisional sense of self. Mm -hmm. Before we move on to the other chapters, I want to circle back to actually the preface of the book. Mm -hmm. 
because you say something in there that I absolutely love, and I would like to hear you uh, expand on this. In the preface, you say, I have given up on the idea of peace of mind. Mm -hmm. Well, I think when I was young, as most people do, we presume that we can figure out what life is about and that there is some sort of grand secret that we'll figure out when we're an adult sometime. And as you know, the older you get, the more complex it becomes and the more you have to keep going back to the drawboard and, and drawing board and reconfigure things. Um, and I also thought that one could maybe reach a place, and I know there are a lot of people trying to do this through meditation and Buddhism and so forth, and I, I value those activities. Um, but I'm also convinced that uh, conflict and strife are inherent in nature. We are creatures of nature. And whether we like it or not, we have to be able to ride with the flow, and we have to be able to sort of redefine ourselves from time to time. You know, you don't even redefine divinity itself in saying, I call divinity that which flings itself violently across my path and alters the course of my life for good or for ill, which is a pretty profound statement, I think, because I think what it represents is his utter respect for the mystery of life, the mystery in which we're all invested, and that um, we're not in charge here. So <laughs> we're, we're here to try to act with as much reasonable consistency and with as much fidelity to our values as we can manage, but we're not in charge in the end of things. Mm -hmm. This book is a series of new essays, and it does come kind of uh, soon after your previous book. And I was wondering what, what happened, what inside you said, there's another book here. Well, specifically, it was triggered by my friend Arya Maidenbaum in his um, series of um, programs he offers at Jung on the Hudson each uh, July. And uh, I've spoken there, I think, 20-some years or so. And he said, uh, we, we've got you scheduled again. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to speak about something and not just repeat what I've said in the past. So that that was the outer occasion. But again, what is a trigger inside? And, and that's where I think the daimon shows up. And when I say daimon, I don't mean demon. It's analogous, I suppose, to what artists have called the muse. But there is something um, going on more than the ego. The, the ego is the vehicle, the, the receptor of those energies. Now, the ego's job, of course, is to discipline itself and to show up repeatedly and, of course, work with the craft of shaping language and paragraphs and sentences. I mean, every single, you know, letter in a book, I'm typing. After all, it's not done for me. But, but where it comes from in some way is a mystery, and I, I want to uh, acknowledge that. Where it comes from is a mystery, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and also you you've been uh, very forthcoming about your desire to just keep working whereas here in the united states uh retirement age uh, for men is 65 and most people look forward to their retirement and i love that um you didn't choose that path 
And mm -hmm. I was wondering if you would say a little bit about um, the psychology of retirement and why you chose to keep working and how I'm sorry to ask you this because I know that a lot of people bring this up and mention it, but I think it's an important point because, uh, and you might not like this, but you are an inspiration uh, in that sense where you choose to keep working because you can. And what you do, uh, you, you, you don't just write books, you're also a practicing Jungian analyst still. Mm -hmm. And you have your private practice and you're, you see your analysands. And, and in addition to that, like you mentioned Jung on the Hudson, you continue to teach as well. And mm -hmm. I just think that your books are richer and richer and richer and with more and more and more experience. and. And and something that I, I also don't want to forget to mention that uh, that you said that you your your greatest teachers are your clients. Uh -huh. Yeah. So I was wondering if that factored into it. Sure. Well, thank you, Laura. Um, <clears throat> I keep asking myself because I'm 81 and a half um, and I've been through some health challenges of late, as one will. Um, when is enough enough? And then I ask myself in a very deliberate way. Uh, is there anything else you would be doing that you find more interesting than this? And the answer so far is no. Um, I continue to find it a privilege to be invited to a conversation in depth with my clients. I consider being a practicing analyst my day job, and the teaching and the writing is all in addition to that. And I think the one thing that's defined me all the way through since five years old is uh, teaching. And I've been teaching in classes and, um, you know, through analysis and books and so forth all this time. So it's still energizing. Let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, sadly, most people don't really enjoy their jobs. And so retirement for them is an enormous opportunity to look for something that really speaks to those facets of their own souls that they necessarily had to leave behind. I find myself in a different position that I'm still enjoying and feeling challenged by the engagement. You know, when, when we work on a dream, for example, uh, none of us know what we're doing. It's an open-ended exploration. Mm. And it's, it's true that through the years, I have learned so much from clients uh, not only about the workings of their psyche, but, you know, what their day jobs, you know, and right. what what, they, what their travels have told them. So it's a kind of travelogue, too, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I consider it an enriching privilege. And, and therefore, the question is, why would I leave that? And that's mm -hmm. what it boils down to. Mm -hmm. The day it's not engaging in that regard is the day I'll go do something else, I guess. The day that it's not engaging... To you anymore you'll do something else and so you're you too live in a cold climate and you were talking about how it's snowing there today in in washington uh -huh. and so uh what see there's no desire to you know move to a warm climate play golf all day long every day because that wouldn't hold the meaning for you that this work does that's true. That's true. Um, actually, I prefer the change of the seasons. Um, mm -hmm. I grew up in the north, and yeah. I, I um, love much of my time in Houston, but I really miss the cycle of the seasons, and mm -hmm. I prefer to be back in the cycle. There's something 
profound about the archetypal rhythm of nature. And uh, also, I, I particularly find Washington a very challenging city to live in, not only because of its uh, political circus going on, mm-hmm. but there's so much history and fantastic museums here that I, I just am privileged. And I must say, as a child, I, I grew up in Springfield, Illinois, and, and my heroes in um, childhood included Abraham Lincoln, of course, and to, to be in places where all this history happened um, is still a thrill for me. Mm-hmm. I, I still feel something when I drive downtown. I'm about two, two miles from the White House and three miles from the Capitol. There's still something inside that touches that child's uh, awe and sense of... Um, amazement at the great experiment that the uh, American uh, journey is about. Mm-hmm. So we kind of got mm-hmm. off track um, the book and to pick up where we left off, we left off with chapter four, which is my favorite chapter. It's titled down and out in Zurich for those who think becoming a Jungian analyst is a cool thing. And that's what I want to talk about is becoming a Jungian analyst. And you start that chapter off by saying a lot of times you're approached by people who either read Memories, Dreams, Reflections, or one of your books and says to you, I want to become a Jungian analyst too. And you've got some warnings in there. And I was hoping that you would share some of them here with us today. Well, I never discourage that person's interest because, as I mentioned in the book, they've been touched by the numinous at that point. The numinous means there is something that we experience that resonates very deeply with us. That happens when we fall in love or when we are moved by music or see some painting that touches us deeply. And that's to be respected. You don't convert that into a job, per se or to a program. However, it's worth exploration. And part of the wisdom of the um, Jungian approach is to say, this is really a decision that has to come out of many, many hours of analysis. You know, Freud reportedly used to require, to the degree that he could, that his folks in analysis not make major decisions about relationships or careers while in analysis, because there are too many shifting pieces in, in the puzzle. And that's a pretty good point. Now, sometimes life happens. We have to make choices. And, um, you know, time doesn't wait for us. But uh, by and large, it's, it's entering a process where you have to say, is this something I really want to undertake and is really a calling for me? Because it is a calling. And it's, frankly, a kind of marginalized calling because the general drift of modern psychology is to cheap and easy, as you know. Behavioral modification, cognitive restructuring, and pharmacology, all of which have their their functions and their their usefulness, but don't necessarily engage the soul. Uh, You talk about, in that chapter, ambiguity. You said that most difficult of all, no one is spared living for several years in considerable right. ambiguity. You were talking about your training when you were mm-hmm. in Zurich for six years to train to become a Jungian analyst. And that was after you had received a PhD, earned a PhD uh, mm-hmm. from Drew University. So it mm-hmm. was an additional mm-hmm. several years of training. And you 
you talk about that and that the, you say that the human ego was not built for ambiguity. So, no. excuse mm -hmm. me. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Apologize. No, I was just, I, one of the topics that comes up on this podcast a lot because it is interviews with Jungian analysts is what does it take to become a Jungian analyst? And also uh, for people who are interested in, um, in, therapy or analysis, why go to a Jungian analyst? And how is that different from other forms of therapy? And then I want to talk about the William James thing. But yeah, so would you, that that really stood out to me is, is um, how the human, the human ego was not built for ambiguity. And how does that come in? Well, the human ego is uh, very uh, uh, sort of easily invaded, as we know. It is uh, very fragile at times. And um, ambiguity is always disturbing because we prefer clarity and control to the degree we can manage that. And when I said that we, in training, we live with ambiguity for years. You see, in normal academia, you take a certain number of credits, you, you pass your exams, you write your papers, and they give you a piece of paper. In Jungian training, you have to have systematic reviews by committees that are interviewing you, trying to see where you are in your process. And you're working in analysis during that entire time, several hour, hundred hours of analysis, by the way. And even at the end, there's a chance that one will be held back or not uh, you know, given permission to graduate because it happens. So um, no one really likes living with that ambiguity. And I, I, the, you know, the average length of training is between five and 10 years. And nobody in their right mind would do that. So <laughs> you really have to feel a deep, deep uh, calling and uh, sort of, uh, sort of con containing energy for, for that kind of, of drive. Because in the meantime, your ordinary life goes on. Of course, during that time, I was also shuttling between academia and working in a psychiatric hospital for experiment, for experience rather. And, um, you know, it was a very uh, demanding time, a very rich time. And again, uh, ultimately a, a privilege to have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. The next chapter, chapter five, is about the importance of failure in our lives. And uh, we hear that a lot that, and I, I always think that whenever anybody talks about failure, they're just saying something to make you feel better. But this is really about, yeah, this is actually, failure is actually important. Sure. You know, it's kind of like doubt. The ego doesn't like doubt either. But mm -hmm. as Arthur Misner said, once doubt is what gets you an education. You know, doubt is what allows us to grow and develop beyond the easy certainties. So failure is whatever knocks us down. And then the question is, am I going to rise off the floor and meet life again? And in doing so, there's a, there's a toughening of our character. There's a formation of resilience. Um, there, there is a certain clarification of values that is uh, obligatory, I think. So all of us would like life to be smooth and easy flowing, but that's really delusional. And I think sooner or later, we all have an appointment with difficult times. And um, what, what are we going to bring to, table, to the table when those times come? And we have a natural desire to protect our children. We all do. 
Uh, I remember when my daughter was born, I, I thought, well, I want to spend my life sort of running ahead of her, leading the blocking, if you will, so nothing harmful mm-hmm. comes to her. And if you want to read Yates's prayer for my daughter, it's a beautiful uh, reflection by a father looking at his child in the, in the cradle. And yet in life, you know, you can't do that. And you, you realize that sooner or later, you have to find something within you. Because as Jung said so profoundly, and I come back to this almost every day in my mind, he said, we need to know what supports us when nothing supports us. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's at the core of things, isn't it? Yeah. When our old certainties, our old adaptations, our old structures, maybe our old relationships, our old dependencies, when they're not working for us, what brings you through? What carries you, you see? And that's really what, what everyone needs to, to know. And if you know that, you carry that with you. That's portable. That goes where you go. Mm-hmm. The next chapter, chapter six, is titled Doing Difficult Therapy. And I thought, was there any other kind? But you you mentioned three three groups of people that, or who require especially complex approaches Uh um, to the matter. Couples, men, and those with spiritual immaturity. And this is a heavy chapter. This is actually another one of my uh, favorite chapters in the book. And there's a lot here. So if you would just maybe say a little bit about each of those three uh, topics, couples, men, Mm -hmm. and spiritual immaturity. Sure. at first glance, folks might think, well, this is a chapter for therapists only, but trust me, it isn't. No. Uh, I think you can validate that. Um, it's, it's really raising the issues. What do we really try to do when we look at the, the dynamics of a relationship? And too many times in relationships, people think of therapy as, as, as if they're in a wrestling match, and the therapist is some sort of referee who's going to score points and then decide who the winner is. Rather than really meeting the mystery of the other person and recognizing that what we're bringing to the table also is part of the problem. So I have a series of questions there that I think anyone in any relationship would ask of themselves. And in so doing, I I would almost guarantee their relationship to their partners is going to change. I, I think in a better way, it'll deepen it. Same is true with, with men. men. Men are very much creatures of socialized roles, as, as women have been. And it's even worse in that, generally speaking, to turn within and pay attention to the fears and the chaos within, for men, is already felt as some kind of defeat. It's like I'm supposed to have been competent enough or courageous enough to have managed that. And so there's an enormous internal and culturally generated um, resistance to self-awareness in men, which estranges them, of course, not only from others, but from their own souls. And so I have a bunch of questions there for every man to look at. And if you happen to be a woman who knows a man, these are questions you might uh, risk uh, raising with that person. And then thirdly, what I've called, and I don't mean to offend anyone, but what Mm -hmm. I'll call the spiritually immature people who haven't 
who have very kind of naive views of life itself. As I mentioned, sooner or later, life's going to knock you down and it's going to disappoint you in profound ways, injure you. Um, you know, and what are you going to do when that time comes? You know, so much of pop psychology is really happy talk. Five easy yeah. steps to this or that, 30 days to whatever. And if it worked, then we'd all be fine. They, they don't work in the long run. Um, and, and, you know, people who assume, you know, that the goal of life is happiness, because after all, we have an entire culture screaming that, so it must be true, right? And, and happiness is not a steady state. It's a byproduct of being in right relationship to your own soul at a particular moment, but it's very transient. Um, and those who, who think, for example, that we ought to have clear values about this or that, when in fact, the truth is always much more complex than that. And, and, and those who, who think somehow that um, some guru is going to show up and tell them what to think, feel, and believe, which is which not the case. When you do that, you relinquish your most precious gift, and that is self-inquiry. What is true for you and what is not? And how do you know? How do you find your path? And so that chapter tries to address that question as well. Mm -hmm. And on the issue of happiness, you bring up, of course, the American Declaration of Independence that we are guaranteed this pursuit of happiness, but you, you bring up the fact that scholars in the 18th century concluded that what, what Jefferson meant by that word in that era was actually the right to pursue a life of personal satisfaction yeah. and a life that mattered to that person. Uh, so that really puts a different slant on it. Um, but it just seems like this get out of jail free card when I hear people say, well, you know, uh, he makes her happy. So, oh, well then, you know, of course, and just go right ahead. So, mm -hmm. yeah, we, I think that we need to, uh, talk about that more uh, as a culture and and really reevaluate that word. And then mm -hmm. I just want to circle back to uh, the concept of spiritual immaturity. Uh, you you bring up this adolescent pop culture that we live in and that came up on the live stream that I did on New Year's Eve. Uh, the concept of, of uh, infantilizing each other and this adolescent culture that we're in. And so my question to you is, and we're going sort of out of, out of uh, turn here, but what does it mean to grow up? I mean, and why are we, why is our culture so adolescent? Why is there a reluctance to grow up? Well, of course, there's a reluctance to grow up because oh to be a grown-up means I am wholly responsible for what happens to my life. Mm -hmm. All of us are creatures of fate, of course, but we also have to remember that from a certain point on, um, we're the one who's making the choice on a daily basis. And what spills into the world is something for which we are accountable. And, and that's such an obvious point. And yet you find a whole culture seeking to blame someone or to avoid accountability. I think probably that word accountability is the most important word in terms of being an adult. When you think of an adolescent, you think of what? Impulsivity, 
short attention span, thinking in strictly black and white values rather than recognizing the shades of gray in between, uh, easily pursuing the newest shiny thing or the most uh, sort of attractive idea. Um, there's a will of the wisp quality to it, and it's not grounded, you see. It's not grounded in a person's roots or in a standpoint that really matters to them. So um, there are many reasons why our culture is so adolescent. And most of the rest of the world sees us in that way, as America is very kind of immature, technologically advanced, yes. Right. But psychologically and culturally, very adolescent. And um, growing up means we have to be able to take on responsibility for our choices and their consequences. And while that sounds simple, it's the toughest thing you ever do in your life. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a friend of mine who lives in another country, and we were talking about how the rest of the world sees America. And I was telling him about some of the behavior problems we were having socially here. And I asked him, uh, he's a teacher of philosophy. I asked him what he thought of that. And he said, you guys have too many freedoms there in America. And I thought, wow. So that uh, brings up something I heard you mention. I'm just going to say this generally. Uh, this pandemic that we're in and mm -hmm. some of the restrictions or the uh, requirements to help us out of it. And some people are resisting what we're being told to do. I, I don't know if I should put it mm -hmm. that way. What we're be it, it, What is being suggested that we do to manage this pandemic. And you said the resistance is coming out of complexes. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, now that makes sense. So sure, sure. Without going down that rabbit hole, mm -hmm. you know, um, people don't, they don't like them, but they don't, they don't really object to, you know, traffic signs and, and stoplights because yeah. we all understand we're in a community and what I do has an effect on other people and what they do has an effect upon me yeah. and our, our separate lives are better when we respect that common interest. And the same has been true with masks and, and vaccinations and so forth. And so um, an enormous amount of resistance uh, has, has been generated. Whenever you're opposed to the, the sort of successes of our scientists and to basic information and frankly to the, to the mathematics that we can see for ourselves, then you have a problem and you better figure out where that problem's coming from. Mm -hmm. You said that Jung said that our biggest sin is to choose to remain unconscious. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And again, adulthood means I am responsible for what spills into the world through me. And if it's coming from the unconscious, then I better pay attention to where things are coming from in me. Mm -hmm. So going back to the book and the chapters, chapter seven is titled Living in Haunted Houses, the latest news from the maddening crowd within. Mm -hmm. Well, it's it's another way of reprising the reprising the um, power and importance of the idea of complexes. Complexes are not in themselves pathological. As Jung put it so succinctly, he said, 
it's only a problem when we think we don't have a complex. <laughs> we, have a compl we have complexes of, of many kinds, positive ones, negative ones, but it's problematic when we're in them and we're not aware of them because they're speaking through us. He called complexes splinter personalities. Uh, complexes are charged clusters of our history, and we have them because we have history. And some of them rise to, if, if, if people hadn't been kind to you and held you and affirmed you, you wouldn't be able to care about other people. You wouldn't be, care about justice. You couldn't form a relationship. Those are positive complexes. Negative ones are the ones that tend to disempower us. And so um, when we talk about haunted houses, we have to recognize that there are many clusters of energy within us that metaphorically uh, our ancestors could have called ghosts in the house. Yeah. And it becomes um, important for us, all of us, to pay attention. You know, why did I respond that way? What took over? Um, why did I get so upset about something? Mm -hmm. Why do things often look better in the light of day than they do at three in the morning? <laughs> you know, th those are how people begin to, to examine their complexes. Or also, where are these patterns coming from me? Um, especially the patterns that I find counterproductive to my life or harmful to others, because that's the work of the complexes in their autonomy. So part of our struggle is not only to identify, but to take them on and to recognize we may have them all of our life, but they don't have to govern our lives. Otherwise, we remain prisoners of history. Yeah, you mentioned in the book uh, that you, you recognize the fact that not everybody has the resources or the the strength, the capacity to enter into analysis. So for those who want to do self-analysis, you say, you suggest that the first thing they do is look at their patterns. But I, I don't want to forget to do this. Um, I've mentioned several times on um, during our interviews together that the first time I saw you lecture was in Columbus, Ohio, where I was living at the time in 2001. Uh, and this is the notebook that I had at the time. And I still have it. And th these are the notes. I used to write very tiny when my eyesight was better and the camera's not picking it up. And there it is a little bit. But uh, <laughs> you talked about complexes. I remember sitting in the audience because uh, the Jung house in the short north wasn't large enough uh, to house the, the attendees. And so you spoke at Capital University. And I remember I could picture seeing you up on the stage and sitting there in the audience and you explained complexes and I'll never forget that. You said, when we're in a complex, we are transiently psychotic and, and sorry, the camera can't pick it up, but it says that right here, Quote, transiently psychotic. And then um, the other thing you said is that and I can't find it right here. Oh, you say that the problem is when we're in it, it feels appropriate. Sure. And those two things have helped me. I heard you say them in 2001, have helped me tremendously. And I've shared them with other people. And I, I always wanted to thank you for that. Well, it's touching that you were there that far back and you're still around. So I appreciate that. <laughs> here we are. Yeah. Yep. Here we are. Uh, yes. Um, and 
to say we're transiently psychotic, what we're, I'm doing there is speaking metaphorically yeah. and saying sure. your fundamental sense of self and world is altered. It's like you're caught up in a little tornado of energy. And when the energy spins out, then you come back to perhaps more realistic and commonplace view of what's happened. And, yeah. and during that time, you make decisions, you respond impulsively or you respond out of your history. And that adds to the pattern. Mm -hmm. That sure does. Uh, so just to move on to the uh, next chapter, uh, chapter eight, the gift and limitations of therapy. Another great chapter that I have a, a lot of notes here on uh, the gift and the limitations of therapy. And you say that the paramount goal of therapy is to return ownership of life back to the patient to see uh -huh. what can be done with it. Mm -hmm. Well, yes. Um, rather than focus on the, the pathology or the pain that brought a person into uh, the treatment in the first place, the real purpose of a depth therapy, which is less problem-oriented, although we address whatever is going on in a person's life, is to really stimulate and support a deepened conversation uh, around the meaning of their life journey. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's something else that sounds both grandiose, but also so threatening or inviting, depending upon that person. A deepened conversation around the meaning of your own journey. And unless that kind of conversation goes on, chances are we're going to be mostly creatures of response to the stimuli in our environment. And whatever the noisiest um, sort of issue is outside of us, that's what we're going to be responding to. And so we're not operating out of our core or out of our authenticity. Jung always said, the, one of the questions that every analyst should ask is, what is this person's neurosis or his or her problem of responding to life? protecting them from addressing what is it they really need to address in their life before they, they sort of recover a sense of personal identity and personal authority and then be op begin to operate out of a different place in their psyche. Mm -hmm. We're more than just creatures of response. Yeah. Uh, if we are, then we're back to childhood at some level. Mm -hmm. we, are, we are creatures who are having to mediate the reflexive responses with what is wishing expression through us coming from our own depths. Mm -hmm. Another, and I mentioned this earlier, you do bring up William James in this, in this chapter. And for some reason, there's been a resurgence in interest in William James. And mm -hmm. something really struck me because of how critical I have been over the years and still am of the different types of therapy out there. And mm -hmm. Uh, you you mentioned that I think you're trying to say that it, it's all necessary because you say that in James's book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, he celebrated rather than critiqued the many, many denominations and spiritual traditions because the conditions of life and, and human needs uh, were better served by this abundance of choices. So... It, it, did, did I get you right there? The well, yeah, no, that was a good summary. And uh, I don't criticize other modes of therapy. After all, what works is what works. <clears throat> Again, 
there are different layers of therapy, let's put it that way. Okay. And sometimes uh, addressing a particular problem, a relational issue or a career choice, that's what brings people into therapy or they're, they're dealing with a depression or they're dealing with a, a specific addiction issue or whatever. It's appropriate to focus on those issues and, and address them as consciously and as assiduously as possible. But many times that's, that's really also only part of the whole sort of mystery of one's life journey. So what else are you going to do with your life? You see, where is it going? What are the driving engines within you? Uh, to what degree are your choices arising out of, a, of a, an authentic place in you? You know, Jung said once, um, neurosis is an, a flight from authentic suffering which is a pretty strong statement, but it says, you know, you don't avoid suffering. The question is, is it authentic? Is it meaningful to you? Or is it simply passive and pathological suffering? And that's, that's a different animal. Mm -hmm. There are three more chapters. Um, I know we're uh, going, uh, we're gonna go a little long here um, because there are a few more things I wanna talk about. Um, the next chapter, chapter nine, is titled All is Fire, the Creative Source Within. Um, so I was hoping maybe you would say just a few words about uh, the next three chapters, and then there are a few other things I'd like to uh, mention toward the end. Well, okay. interestingly enough, <clears throat> excuse me, and this is not your fault, it's mine, um, I substituted for that chapter, All is Fire, uh, and what I placed instead is a, an a appreciation of my dear friend, the poet Stephen Dunn, who just oh, passed yes. away. So the book has a, a different chapter there, and it's quite all right, um, and and so that's fine. And I, I, I have, think, Yeah, I have two versions of the book. You, I have, you uh, have two versions, that's fine. And, and you had the early printed, I mean, uh, uh, manuscript version, and then later the, the text or something yes, else. Yes, and I didn't catch that, so I apologize, but I did read that uh, your friend, the Pulitzer Prize winning poet, Stephen Dunn, who passed away earlier this year. Uh, that's correct, yes. 2021. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah, and really, <clears throat> the last chapter is a peculiar one. I have a lot of stories there from my own childhood, which I've not mm -hmm. talked about before. Excuse me. <clears throat> Pardon me. Sure. Take your time. Yeah. And, uh, um, I say it notes toward an autobiography because I don't plan to write an autobiography, but I, I wanted to say we all have certain persistent stories, images that stick with us. And particularly I've noticed in my clients over 65, they, their mm -hmm. dreams keep bringing up people and circumstances from their past. And this is not as some people believe, uh, believe that uh, an older person is, is caught in nostalgia. I think it's the psyche's way of uh, still working on clarification of our journey. What was that about? What are the stuck yeah. places for you? What did those issues or incidents make you do or keep you from doing with your life? Uh, this is not finished business. It's ongoing, the whole process of self-awareness. And so I provide in that chapter a number of examples. And so these are some of the images and stories that persist from my childhood. <clears throat> and then try to say, this is how they influenced me. 
Yeah. I couldn't have known it at the time, but now I see they set off some pervasive responses that resonate up to the present. And I need to know about that because, again, I need to deal with that consciously. And this is going to be true for everybody who reads the book because there are influences at work within all of us. Some are helpful. Some are not. Some represent unfinished business, and it makes sense to sort of know what is unfinished in, in the conduct of our lives. Mm -hmm. So you gave a talk. I, I wanted to mention this earlier when we were talking about men, and I, I don't want this to be left out. You gave a talk for the East Meets West in Psychotherapy Conference. Um, you you talked about living an examined life, but then you talked about uh, men, and I'm looking for the title right now. Why is therapy with men so difficult? Mm -hmm. And I attended both of those talks, and it it reminded me of the film that you and Nancy Ferlotti. Mm -hmm made star in uh, mm -hmm. um, I think you wrote some of it you produced mm -hmm. one mm -hmm. of the producers called soul heal and I wanted to bring that up today because I talked about it with Nancy and mm -hmm. I want you to say a few words about it because it is so important uh, this film is available online for a dollar 99 uh, there will be a link to it in the show notes and you say that the film is about the miserable state of modern men. Mm -hmm. and that it was mm -hmm. designed to provoke conversation. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yes, I was approached um, some years ago by Jose Pardo, who is a uh, now a good friend of mine. And he's a uh, movie maker in Hollywood. I was literally speaking in Los Angeles. And um, we decided to do this short film. It's 23 minutes. And our purposes are nonprofit. It's meant to provoke a conversation on what does it mean to be a man today? Mm -hmm. Because the traditional roles of men, which were often constrictive and binding and harmful to self and others, have been challenged and in many cases deconstructed. But then where does a man go today? And most men are adrift and very much confused about what it means to be a man. And so this, this film is addressing what happens when you don't have rites of passage? What happens when you don't have many <clears throat> wise elders to help you uh, tr uh, conduct transitions in your life journey and, and so forth? And so um, it's, if, if people want to see the film, again, any profits that come out of this are going to go to women's abuse shelters and to uh, uh, groups that are devoted to uh, youth at risk. And so it's, it's, again, our purpose simply to be not only educational, but provocative and to say, mm -hmm. raise some ideas and see uh, how this strikes you. And it's, it's a film that I think is useful for women to, to yeah. see as well. Yeah. And it made me squirm a few times. Uh, there, it's a difficult topic, and I had no idea the extent of uh, the issues that men modern men had, especially in this country, uh, mm -hmm. that's really all I know is what's going on in this country. Um, mm -hmm. And your talk, Why is Therapy with Men So Difficult, is, is an excellent talk. Uh, I actually attended it twice. Uh, you also gave it for Ethos. So uh, if you will be speaking about that uh, on that topic in the future, 
I will uh, let the listeners know. And uh, what else did I want to mention? Um, you want to talk about the cover? The, yes. So I have that here. The cover of the new book, The Broken Mirror, is a painting done by your wife, Jill, and mm -hmm. it's titled Beneath the Cerements of Plenty. Mm -hmm. And I've been staring at the book cover for months now because I, I got the cover early and I, I just... I, I thought, what is this? What's happening here? And something kept bringing me back to look at it and stare at it. And it, I've I've spent a lot of time looking at that painting. And so I'd like to hear what you have to say about it. Well, I don't know if the, you can you can't see this well enough. I guess so. Um, you probably put it on your your website. Yes. <clears throat> yeah. Well. I asked my, and you were kind enough well, to invite I can bring me. it up while you're talking. I can okay. actually share my screen. You were kind yeah. enough to invite my wife to comment on this. Yeah. And she quickly refused to do that. <laughs> but um, she she really paints from the unconscious, you know. Um, I'll just give you, I, when I met her, she was in analysis in Zurich. And she did a, she had a very powerful dream about an East European city that was very haunting to her. So she painted it from about a dozen different angles, move the buildings around time of day and so forth. And I, I hope we can see a little bit of this. You can see a little, yeah. And let me yeah. turn it upside down. You see the richness of the imagery. All of that was a way of honoring the images that were coming up from the unconscious. I suppose one of the, you could say one of the differences between us, she lives with the unconscious and, and manifested it through her painting. And I look at it and interpret it, you see. So um, in this particular painting that's on this cover, and she has several others of Chiron covers, um, when, when you first look at it, your eye is necessarily drawn to this very rich uh, image of the pair. There's a certain numinosity to that image. So you're, you're, you're drawn to the left side of the painting. And, and yet you see that it's pasted on somehow. It's been patched on. Literally, there's a Band-Aid holding it on. And then to the right is a far more sort of desolate um, imagery there. And, and I asked her, well, what were you trying to say there? And she said, I have no idea. It's <laughs> simply how the images emerged to me. Mm -hmm. So it, the title, frankly, is mine. Um, it's kind of a smart-ass title, and <laughs> she wouldn't have titled it that. But ceremonies have to do <clears throat> with the winding sheets or funereal garments. And so I think it's a painting that talks about how one can be so caught up in the appearance of plenitude. And yet underneath it, at times, there are always, in a sense, drifts into desolate times as well. And both sides of our life are depicted in some way in this, uh, in this painting. Now, again, I'm adding language to a process that was unconscious for her, and she's, she was painting the images. And she actually prefers not to talk about it. She'd rather let the image speak for itself. Sorry, I was trying to bring up the cover, but um, I just brought up the banner because the the episode page hasn't been uh, published yet. So that's fine. I wanted to mention the other covers that 
that she's done or the paintings that are mm -hmm. were used for your book cover also uh for your book hauntings her mm -hmm. painting titled spectral presences of the window and the window curtains and the candle that's been blown out i love that cover mm -hmm. and on the book prisms hermes had arrived and dr jones's book the best of james hollis uh the cover of that book is her painting when hermes smiles he's up to no good did you title that one too all of the titles come from me i'm, I'm oh, confession sorry because again she's she's caught in the image and she's honoring the image which is an appropriate thing Mm -hmm. um, I'm the one who thinks about it and reflects upon it later. And uh, mm -hmm. the, the painting about spectral presences yeah. was done long before I wrote the book. So it wasn't like it was done for the book. None of these were done for the book. These are all images that came to her. That's where the daimon approached her. And I then saw how it would be also applicable to the subject of these books. Mm -hmm. So. That's how it worked. Sorry, I wasn't prepared to bring up the uh, book covers, but uh, if you go to speakingofyoung.com and click on this episode page, you can see all of them there. So I wanted to also mention, um, what did I also want to mention? I'm scrolling through my notes here. This is, uh, again, the first time that I've recorded an episode of the podcast on video and so it's not going to be edited. So I'm a little awkward here. Um, so another thing I heard you mention, I just was hoping you would say something briefly uh, during your talk for East Meast West in psychotherapy was, I didn't know this, that Marie-Louise von Franz was one of your teachers in Zurich? Yes, well, she was still lecturing at the time and uh, on the subject of um, sort of portraits of the psyche as manifested through the, the fairy tales or the Märchen, as they call it in, in German. So um, I, I would consider reading von Franz second only to Jung in terms of understanding how the, the psyche really operates. And she was a profoundly uh, insightful and wise uh, person. Mm -hmm. And Daryl Sharp and Inner City Books have published a lot of her material and uh, Chiron Publications has begun publishing her collected works. Yes. So I was wondering uh, if we had any final words uh, as we've come to the end of our time here. We've gone a little bit over an hour. Um, we finished covering the book the last few chapters, chapter 10, the resources within each of us, chapter 11, you mentioned notes toward a personal memoir, and then an afterword on the matter of soul. Mm -hmm. Yes, that afterword really was the afterword. Um, one of my analysis, just after I'd already sent the manuscript in, asked me this very you know, basic question, legitimate question, what makes you think we have a soul? And, and that's, that's a terrific question. So in, in that, I, I just decided to address that subject and, and in a few pages uh, express why I think there is a soul. Yeah. I might mention that soul is the translation of the Greek word psyche. So when we talk about the psyche, we're really talking about the, 
the true identity within each of us that is that is who we are that's our soul and there the question the, the book raises the question um as i mentioned at the beginning can we ever know ourselves fully and i think the answer is clearly no but we can gain greater and greater purchase on certain insights into ourselves but there's also something that knows us in a way that's constantly present and commenting upon us yeah. to us about our lives. Historically, folks have said, and most people would still believe today, that only a deity or God would be able to know us fully. It's also true to say that our psyche knows who we are, what's right for us, is constantly making comments if we pay attention. We learned as children early on, you better pay attention to what's going on in the environment because it's pretty demanding. And so we lose contact with that conversation. And that's what really a depth psychological approach seeks to uh, sort of uh, gain again is, as I said, a depth conversation around the meaning of your own journey. And with that, working with dreams or our symptoms and the feeling function and, and so forth which is not narcissism and not self-absorption. It's actually a humbling process because we're constantly running into things we didn't know about ourselves or, yeah. or have new agendas that come up for me. And therefore, when you do that, um, you realize you become less problematic to your partners, to your children, to your society, because you're cleaning up your own backyard in a different way. Mm -hmm. When... Um, Voltaire's Candide says at the end of his journey, uh, you know, till, you know, clean up your own backyard, till your own garden. There's a profound truth there that the single best thing that we can do for our relationships is ironically and paradoxically know ourselves more fully because what we don't know still s falls into the world and, you know, is dumped on the souls of other people. Mm -hmm. So important. And just one more thing. I don't know if it was in this book or if I heard you mention this, that the answer to why do you want to become a Jungian analyst, it's frowned upon. The answer of because I want to help people mm -hmm. is really frowned upon. And I, I love your explanation as to why if you uh, have a few more minutes to just sure. tell us why, because I want to help people, it's kind of not the right answer. Well, uh, you know, it was certainly um, rumored among the trainees when I was in Zurich. Uh, if the question comes up, why do you want to become an analyst? If you say, I want to help people, it's not going to help your cause <laughs> because, you know, you're here to help yourself. We all start out with the process trying to figure out our own craziness. And the more you know, the more you have to deal with. So um, when I was asked a version of that question, I wasn't asked it that directly, but I was asked a version of it. I, I said, you know, so far, this is the best way I know to um, begin to address what's going on inside of me. And in fact, little did I know at that time that the entire second half of my life would be devoted to disseminating uh, the insights of Jungian and analytic psychology based on the basic premise that if I found these ideas and tools helpful to me, why would I not share them with others? Yeah. You know, I, I spent my early life in academia and I value that, but uh, I, I found that another form of education 
which again comes from, you know, the word educe, from which we get education, means to draw forth from within, not impose on someone. So the question is, what are the ways in which we draw forth our own engagement and depth? And when we undertake this from an analytic psychological perspective, you begin to realize, as Jung said, life is a short pause between two great mysteries. And our task and summons here is to make this pause as uh, meaningful as we can and perhaps as luminous as we can. Mm -hmm. Well, you've certainly done that for us, Dr. Hollis. I'd like to thank you so much for being my 100th guest and for six episodes of this podcast. And I look forward to the next one. Thank you, Laura. You've done a marvelous job again. Thank you. I'm just going to read the outro. I, this is awkward. Please visit our website, speakingofyoung, that's J-U-N-G.com, for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode and to stream or download the audio. And I would just like to give special thanks to Dr. Stephen Buser and Jennifer Fitzgerald at Chiron Publications. And to Daryl, Dave, and Ben Sharp, Victoria Cowan, Scott Milligan, and Liz Jefferson at Inner City Books. And to all our listeners over the past six years, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Young.